Welcome to the Musician's Toolbox. I'm Andrew. And I'm Angela. And on this podcast, we interview people in the music industry to see what they have learned so we can be successful too. Every Friday, we release a new episode. And I'm always inspired to practice more, be a better musician and entrepreneur. We create content for all musicians, young or old, hobbyist or pro, classical or jazz, or songwriter or music producer. Lastly, before we get on to the interview, we see you guys watching and we want to see where you're watching from. Um, and if you have any suggestions or requests for people to be on the podcast, our email is in the description below. And so today we've got a very special episode. Angela, tell us about today's interview. Um, today we have Dr. Renee Paul Gauthier. I should have asked how to pronounce your name before I did that. I hope I didn't butcher it. Um, she is a violinist and a teacher. She is um, professionally performing in many ensembles or orchestras in the Chicago metropolitan area, including um, the uh, Chicago Symphony. She's a sub with them, and she also does um, opera playing with the Chicago Opera. Um, she's won many competitions as a virtuoso violinist and has three degrees in violin performance. Um, one of her passion projects is her podcast, The Mind Over Finger, and she speaks all over the country about having mindful practice, audition preparation, and anxiety management. So we're so grateful to have you here with us today, Dr. Gauthier, and thank you for being here. Yes, thanks. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So we like to learn a little bit more about the people we're interviewing. So can you just tell us about how you got into music and your musical journey? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm from a very small town in Quebec, and both my parents were musicians. They were school mm -hmm. teachers and um, also started a nonprofit music school. And that's important in the story, that's why I'm saying it, mm -hmm. because when uh, I first started lessons as the child of two musicians, that's you know usually <laughs> <laughs> what we do. Um, I had a lot of support and guidance in practicing at home. Um, at the age of nine, I started studying with a teacher who's been really, really influential in my life, influential, and his name is Jean-Francois Rivet. I do have a podcast episode with him. I forget the number, but anyway, I think mm -hmm. 15 or 25. And the way he taught me really raised my awareness. So there was this combination of him really in lessons, paying me, uh, you know, guiding me to pay attention, to listen to the sound I was producing, to experience the movements I was doing, uh, learn, you know, the sense of touch. Um, and really, he was just so enthusiastic about music making and, and loving music that it was really um, something that stayed with me until today and kind of is at the basis of everything that I do right now. So I would have these lessons with him, which were both lessons in how to play the violin and also how to pay attention to music and guide my focus. And then I would go home and my mother would practice with me. Mm -hmm. And it was practically like having lessons. Mm -hmm you know, every day. And as I got older, I would start to practicing more and more to you know, three hours a day. And it was kind of similar where she would guide my attention continually in uh, the practice room. So of course, that way you progress fast and you develop really good habits. And that's what music making is, is developing these habits and these skills. 
And that's really what I was trying to untangle in the past few years. But, you know, I'm skipping some steps mm -hmm. after uh, I finished my undergrad I went to Eastman and uh, the mm. New World Symphony and uh, subsequently did a, a doctorate. And when I started and, you know, performed for many years with several ensembles, both in Canada and here in the States. And as I started teaching at the college level, I was really struck by the fact that so many of my students did not have that same level of awareness. I remember being in college with no longer my mother to practice with me <laughs> and realizing I had two different types of practice. There'd be the type of practice where I go in the room, clock in time and whatever happens, happens, you mm. know, sometimes mm -hmm. you learn some notes and you know, that's good. But then there'd be mm -hmm. time where I'd be, whoop, maybe it's the day before the lesson and I mm -hmm. didn't quite get everything done or it's the week before jury or it's the week before a competition. And my practice was completely different. It was very focused, very organized, goal-oriented, and I would get massive results. And I started to really realize that mm -hmm. and get really curious about, wait, what happens when I'm this productive? So fast forward to when I started teaching and realizing that the students oftentimes did not have not just practicing techniques, how to practice, but not even the knowledge on how to pay attention, how to listen how to experience making music and i just became completely obsessed with figuring out how to develop a system who would make it possible for them to start having this awareness develop this focus in the practice room and this is what i centered all of my research around during my my doctoral studies and developed what i call the deep practice model which is what i teach now to all of my private students, uh, my private coaching clients and uh, participants. I have uh, online coaching programs, the Music Mastery Experience, and we develop all, uh, we discuss all of these methods of practicing. So it's practice tools, but also mindsets, how to pay attention, how to nurture focus, how to prepare for performances, all of these things. So in a nutshell, that's my journey until, until today. And I really feel like it has almost come full circle from that time uh, at nine years old when I started yeah. studying with my teacher. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. So I don't know if this is too much to ask you to divulge on our podcast, but <laughs> um, I, it, it seems like you focus, like we said, on, an, on performance anxiety and audition preparation and mindful practice. Is that, is that a fair synopsis? Yes. Can you give us kind of like a crash course in these three different topics of how you approach um, performance anxiety and um, what is mindful practice versus mm -hmm. not mindful practice and how your journey with that has changed? Um, and then uh, the audition preparation or that... Do you, do you mind telling us more more detail on those topics? Yes, not at all. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like one thing I say is you can walk in the practice room and go like this. For those who can't see me, I'm moving my arms as if I'm playing the violin for four hours and get nothing done. Mm -hmm. That's possible. Or one thing you could get done actually is build on bad habits. This mindlessness or we're just repeating things over and over. It's like wishful thinking. Mm. If I play it 40 times poorly, maybe it will improve. When mm. what you're doing is actually <laughs> reinforcing 
all of the bad habits. So it's like ironing, you know, like not a lot of people iron clothes nowadays, but I remember, you know, if you iron the wrong, I don't know in English the word, but in French we say faux pli. It's the, the, the you know, you iron it in, it's, you almost have to wash the garment again mm -hmm. <laughs> to, right. to, get, mm -hmm. to get it out. So it's kind of the same with practicing. When you develop these bad habits, it's so difficult to go back and fix. So at the heart of mindful practice, the way that I teach it is paying attention, learning how to pay attention. Of course, there is a million practicing techniques. There is a process that I teach um, where you start with breaking things into chunks, mapping it, so identifying elements in the work, and then you start all sorts of different drills, practicing slowly, but that's a whole other topic. What is slow practice? You can play things slowly and poorly. It, I see it all the time, believe yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> so practicing something slowly does not guarantee that you'll play it well. There's a way to practice slowly. Uh, there's tempo drills. There's, um, you know, practicing with rhythms. There's uh, something called desirable difficulty where you, things, you make things more difficult in order to uh, be able to play it better once you, you know, or you mm -hmm. can simplify things. Anyway, mm -hmm. million practice techniques. But there's also some very, very important mindsets. And how to pay attention, the kind of attitude to have, as I mentioned already, one of the big mindset of the deep practice model is beginner's mind, that curiosity. Um, also that humility in front of maintaining the fundamentals. Hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, um, one of my favorite thing to say is go back to lesson number one. If you're struggling with something, what was lesson number one? Well, probably if you played the violin, they taught you how to stand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> how are you standing? Um, how are you well balanced on your legs? That's lesson number one. And oftentimes we're struggling with something and we want to be experts and we go super complex and we're like, oh, this is a hard shift. And uh, I'm going to think about my finger angles and all these things. When at times, actually, we don't even know what note we're trying to play or what position we're trying to hit or, you know, where mm -hmm. you're trying to land on the keyboard. Start there. What note mm -hmm. are you trying to play? But also, lesson number one, posture. How are you standing? Are you breathing? That's an important one. Mm -hmm. um, even if you play a non-wind instrument, you know, being aware of your breath is something that can completely transform your experience in the practice room. I have um, to tell you on your on your breathing, I just have to interject here. I have a cousin who learned all of Suzuki book one. Mm -hmm. And when she got to Suzuki book two and she was performing it from memory, she started passing out. And they realized that she hadn't learned how to play and breathe at the breathe. same time. Wow. So she had to go back and start over on book one <laughs> and make sure that she was breathing and exhaling and inhaling. So, yes, breath is, even at a very beginner stage, mm. can be forgotten. Mm. And you don't notice it until you get to book two because the pieces get longer, right? So yes, <laughs> yes. this poor oh. little five-year-old is just, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I love I love this story and mm -hmm. it really shows how the second we we feel like we're expert at something, we get very negligent of the fundamentals mm -hmm. and they're complacent. called fundamentals. Yes, complacent mm -hmm. is a fantastic word and they're called fundamentals for a reason. You know, I think that 
I mean, I cut my finger really badly the other day, and that's because I just was not holding my finger the way you should when you cut stuff. Mm -hmm. So when you play the violin, you're not going to cut a piece of your skin off if you're negligent or complacent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not quite as terrifying, but in the long run it is because you're developing all of these bad habits. So you're not bleeding, <laughs> but, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> almost. Um, so the... Um, these mindsets are really important. A big, big part of what I teach to really is self-compassion as well. How do you mm. talk to yourself when you practice? As in music, as in sports, as in business, all aspects. I mean, we see it in the society everywhere. It's not just musicians. We are taught to think that Things need to be worked at hard, that we need to be demanding, we need to be harsh. You know, it's like those montage and movies where the athlete is pushing himself. You know, I'm thinking of like Rocky moments here because mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I'm a child of the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there must be sweat and agony and, you know, you got to drink your raw eggs and things like this. <laughs> this is not how practice has to feel to be productive. Actually, the opposite where mm -hmm. you really learn to step outside of anger, step outside of perfectionism, self-degradation, and you become a, an empowering coach to yourself, you can completely mm -hmm. transform your practicing experience. That's a big part of what I teach as well. And I see it across the board. All of my clients, from amateurs to professionals playing in the world's best orchestras, self-compassion is a game-changer because everyone is suffering with this inner bully in the practice room. It is not the most efficient way to work. So that's really something to start paying attention to. So I think that when you can give yourself a lot of license to be creative in the way you approach practice, um, monitor these fundamentals and use a lot of self-compassion the, the practicing can really transform. And tying that to performance preparation, to go back to the, the first question that you asked me, when you practice that way, you also have less performance anxiety. So there's tons of performance anxiety management tools out there. I was really lucky when I was at New World that I got to work with Don Green. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been, uh, you know, working on these uh, all of my life. I've myself did like you said a lot of competitions and auditions where I got to test a lot of techniques and found many that I really like visualization is always a great tool mock performances are always so helpful but the way you learn something will really change your performance so if you can always practice in the way that you are learning deeply efficiently with a lot of self-compassion then you need to mitigate performance anxiety less because you're experiencing it less. Mm -hmm. So it seems like you, I mean, you're just like asking yourself questions like, does this sound good? What do I want it to sound like? How can I do it? Like, am I breathing? Am I? So in your yes. practice sessions, you're just always asking questions and, and also like preparing for performances. Like, what do I need to be doing so I'm prepared? Absolutely. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's, that's one thing of uh, the like beginner's mind is always asking uh -huh. a question. Yeah. One of my favorite questions is what else? 
Okay. What else can yeah. I see? What else can I try? This passage is not working. How else can I mm. work on it? Mm-hmm. Let's well, find something fun. Let's find a fun way to work on this. Yeah. Well, because the reality is um, when we begin going to school, we play games and we learn through, you know, play, basically. Mm-hmm. And as we get older, we learn what the questions on the test are going to be <sighs> and how to memorize the answer to them. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily equate to understanding. And if you approach music the same way, well, I can play all the notes. I can play all the dynamics, I've got the Boeings right, then you've lost that beginner mindset and it keeps you from getting to the lower, deeper levels. And so, yeah, I I like the reminder to continue to ask questions all the time. Um, I know that I, another one of my cousins, I remember (laughs) I hated going on car rides with her when she was at a certain age because... She'd say, you know, the, the, the normal questions that a four-year-old asks, Mom, why is the grass green? Well, because of, you know, we'd, we'd answer it. Well, why? You'd answer that question. Well, why? And I'm like, there was just never an answer that was enough. <laughs> and I was yes. like, Google it. Go look it up. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I can so. illustrate what I was just talking about with a concrete example. Sure. That's mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, so sure. this was years ago. I was taking an audition and... I was what I would call audition doubt. I just mm. did not want to do it, but I felt like I really should take this audition. First of all, I want to play with this orchestra, but as anyone who's taken an audition before prepared for competition, it is daunting <laughs> because every day you walk in the practice room and you have to open your case and you have to face all of your fears and all of your feeling of inadequacies and feeling less than and all that. So it's not easy and it's never as good as you want it to be mm-hmm. and there's never enough time so you know it's it can be a daunting process and i thought okay what do you know what do what do i teach mm-hmm. <laughs> get clear on your goals well you know i want to play with this orchestra i want to take this audition i want to be successful in this audition um how i don't want to practice these excerpts again you know okay how can I make those better well by being a better violinist how can I make this less daunting Mm, well by being creative and how I practice trying new things okay Mm -hmm. let's do that so I decided to apply this principle of the the axe sharpening you know this quote from I think it's Abraham Lincoln that everyone talks uh, everyone repeats if you listen to any music podcast anywhere, mm-hmm. that if uh, someone gives you, and I'm not, I'm paraphrasing the quote, but if someone gives you six hours to chub down a tree, you spend four hours sharpening the axe. Mm. That's the same. Yeah. So I thought, you know what? I do love practicing scales. I love technique. And when I ha- have, uh, you know, when I give myself this time to really work on all of my technical things, work on my vibrato sound, then it's more fun to practice on my repertoire because I feel great and, mm-hmm. and everything is ready to go. My engine is primed. So I thought, okay, I'm going to spend the bulk of my practice time on technique. What do I want to practice? And I really gave myself a lot of freedom. Like, well, I want to cover all aspects intonation, vibrato, double stops. Mm -hmm. And I just decided to practice on exercises that I was interested in and gave myself freedom to be creative with the ways I would practice these things. And then 
when I started practicing the excerpts, I have all sorts of processes and ways that I like to practice on things, but I'll give you a specific example. Violinists will know what I'm saying when they say Schumantu. Excerpts, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost on all the lists. And it's, um, for those who don't know, that excerpt is just scherzo from the Second Symphony, and it's these repeated 16th notes with, you know, it's difficult for the articulation. There's lots of dynamic changes and in the intonation. And I thought, okay, I've practiced this excerpt so many times, and I've done all the ways that I can think of practicing in. in. So, okay, what else? What have mm-hmm. I not tried? You know, mm-hmm. how creative can I get? And I decided to take this etude, chords are nine. It's not even the same, uh, same number of beats per measure. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. only thing they have in common is repeated 16th notes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not the same articulation. It's not the same notes. Um, and I decided I'm going to take the notes of chords are nine and play them with the dynamics, articulation, and meter of Schumann too. Wow. And it was so confusing. <laughs> and I kept messing up and I was just laughing at myself. I really felt like, you know, it's like a, mm-hmm. a let's say you're a figure skater and someone gives you racing skates. So different, <laughs> right? And you're like mm-hmm. kind of struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was so different and fun and challenging and confusing. And at the same time, such a huge I really felt like my brain had to work so fast mm-hmm. I really felt challenged and that was so fun mm-hmm. and when I would go back and play the right notes it felt fresh I felt mm-hmm. like I was rediscovering the excerpt and the extra effort the extra mental effort required to execute these very delicate physical maneuvers really was helping me like sharpening my skills to execute it and and that's how i approached the whole preparation for this audition was to how can i make this how can i become a better musician through this audition so i also took a very person i i turned the goal into a very personal thing mm-hmm. so the the goal was yes i want to be successful at this audition but at the same time i'll use this to really make these practice sessions challenging enjoyable rewarding and i will walk away regardless of the outcome of the audition with greater skills and more knowledge and and growth as as an artist the outcome was positive thankfully Mm -hmm. i was really happy Mm -hmm. i won this audition so that's that's a good story to tell (laughs) yeah Uh i like how you decided after or before you did it that you were going to be have a positive experience even if you lost it or won it Yes. Yeah, that's great. I think that if I attach a personal, meaningful goal to another task that I have to do, Mm -hmm. then the work feels different. Yeah. Yesterday we were speaking with uh, that viola kid. I don't know if you've heard of him. Drew. Drew, yeah. yeah. And he said something about performances where... Um, like a successful a successful performance, one of the things about it is that you remove all expectation. Hmm. And absolutely, it's mm-hmm. kind of similar to what you're saying. Um, we're like, yeah, yeah, that's that's a really great way to have to have success there. The other thing that's that's interesting is I've spoken to many musicians, you know, career musicians, orchestral musicians, and um, one of my friends that plays for the LA Phil actually his best audition was not for the LA Phil. It was for a job he didn't get. 
the mm. best mm-hmm. the best audition he's ever had in his life. Mm. He didn't win the job. And he had an okay day when he auditioned for LA Phil, but that just happened to be the day that he landed the job. And it's, so it's mm. it's really interesting um, because, you know, our our judgment of how we're feeling when we're playing and how that equates to external uh, judgments and factors of how that... Mm. Anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. That's it. That's the dichotomy of performing is that... Uh, I didn't come up with this. Someone else told me this story, but... I forget which artist said it, that when you try to impress, it's hard to express. But when you focus Mm. on expressing, then you might have a chance Mm. at impressing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's so true because um, no matter what you do, how well you do, how poorly you do, anyone listening to you, grading you for a jury or giving you a job, they're not listening objectively to what you're doing. This is not numbers on a piece of paper that can be analyzed. It's not that kind of data. So they're listening through their own paradigm, their own personal taste, their own personal frustrations and and desires and wishes. And the result of anything is usually completely out of our hands, actually. Mm -hmm. And we hop on stage with all of these expectations, like what you said, and that creates hesitation when we play because Mm -hmm. with each note, we're asking for permission or validation. Mm. There's a filter between um, what we're trying to express and how we render it. And sometimes we're, we get shy also. That's a question I get sometimes from clients where they're a little shy to express by fear of being judged. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that we can do is go out there, release all expectations, like Drew was saying, Mm-hmm. And then let the work speak for itself. Mm-hmm. And it's easy, easier said than done, unfortunately. <laughs> but I remember a few years ago being backstage before a champion music performance and really able to feel, go from a place of feeling very nervous and tense to a place of feeling completely free within five seconds from having this realization like oh, this I was not looking forward to the performance because I was nervous and then realizing that's because I'm this fear of judgment mm-hmm. and the fact that I'm f- afraid of it will not help me play better it's not helpful why yeah. mm-hmm. and the absurdity shocked me so much that it's like all of my stress left me in that moment mm-hmm. and I said to myself I need to play from a place of love and joy. And I just repeated that in my head over and over Mm. before I hopped on stage. And that became my sole intention as I was playing the concert to play from a place of joy and love. And that's been kind of my pre-performance mantra ever since. I know technically it's not a mantra. But (laughs) I was actually um, thinking mantra the whole time you were saying it. So (laughs) I think it's a mantra. I I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, playing from a place of love and joy, because once you're backstage, the work is over. You, you can't change what's happening. It's it's in the box with the wrapping paper around it. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like it, yeah. it's ready to be open. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's not always possible for me to let go of all stress before performances. But when I can remember that, I can definitely get to a place of more uh, freedom and lightness of being and... Therefore, I'm actually 
expressing more because I just I don't have these hesitations anymore. I'm not asking for permission. I'm just letting mm. the music flow out. Mm-hmm. So I have a a question that kind of goes back to a topic we were talking about a little while ago, but um, I kind of want a little bit more clarity on it when. Because I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that if it was a problem for me at one point in my life, it probably is for other musicians as well. And when I was doing my graduate work, one of the hardest things for me, because I, I never had super consistent teachers until I went to college, just because of where we live and accessibility. Um, so I never had weekly lessons. Um, but growing up in a musical home... Um, being relatively smart, I usually excelled just because you have that kind of support system at home. So I ended up having a lot of like fundamental setup issues mm-hmm. um, that inhibited me from getting better technically. So I finally found a teacher for my master's degree that wanted to basically take me back to square one, which is what I needed. And um, I was so hungry to change in the right ways that she 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 said it this way she'd like change something in my bow hold or change something in the way I was holding my instrument and she's like the change I was asking you to make was like going from Santa Barbara to LA which is a 90 minute drive and you went from Santa Barbara to Australia <laughs> so like because we were making such drastic changes with mm-hmm. these fundamental things um I wasn't a good judge of what felt right because it didn't feel right anymore and so if you have students where you're making changes like that, that you do need to drill and you do need to um, do it a lot so that it becomes natural to them, um, how how do you help your students so that they know where that right place feels like and they're not practicing wrong, but they're still able to progress? Does that make sense? Yes. It's such a great question and such a difficult one to answer because it's so personal. (laughs) One thing I talk a lot about on the podcast and with all my clients too is always like this taking ownership of your learning experience. But an aspect of it is also the amount of introspection that is necessary when you take information from a teacher and then you go to the practice room and you're like, okay. Uh, and I'm not saying that that's what you did. But what I see at times is, well, I see several things. But the two main ones that I would see is someone who tries to execute what I said without questioning. How does that apply to me, to my hand? Mm. So if I ask for someone to have, uh, I'll, be, uh, I'll pick something random for the violin a straight straighter wrist right we don't play with a straight wrist the wrist will move at times but the basic fundamental position would be start with the straight wrist does that student then go home and if they stiff it up is not what Mm -hmm. i'm looking for i'm not Mm -hmm. wanting them to make things more difficult for them so for themselves so it's maybe asking what does she mean or what does he mean? How does that apply for me? What does it look like? And always, like you were saying earlier, always asking yourself question. Mm-hmm. Does this feel easier? Does it sound better? Does it make it easier for me to play whatever I'm trying to play? Mm. And using a lot of patience 
just so much patience. So one thing I see is that this taking what I'm saying at 100% face value without the personalization aspect mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I see is the opposite where go home, try what I say, but it's unfamiliar. Therefore, so that's the thing with mastery is that to grow at times you need to let go of this perceived ex expertise that you have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have to undo the Lego building to rebuild something else with the same pieces. Mm -hmm. I have child, I have children. <laughs> can you tell? Um, <laughs> but it's very difficult for people to, to feel like the day before they could play something with what they thought was ease, even if it wasn't the right mm -hmm. way. And five years from now, they, they won't be able to play any faster because mm -hmm. it's not the right technique. But then to rebuild it, they would have to let go of some of that ease for a few days, a few weeks, maybe in, in the worst case. I don't want to say the worst case, but, the, you know, the more um, uh, dramatic cases, uh, maybe even a few months. It mm -hmm. takes sometimes to reconstruct a technique. So letting go of this is really hard for some people. So they'll try it and it's unfamiliar and it, they feel like they can't play better within five seconds. So they, they give mm -hmm. up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then that's when you get a situation where week after week after week after week after week after week after years, <laughs> mm -hmm. someone shows up and the, it just doesn't get fixed because the they don't take that time to do the experimentation, to try it, to let go of the perceived expertise and mm -hmm. become a beginner again and rebuild mm -hmm. from there. So there is... It's such a gray area, you know, mm -hmm. but Definitely. I would say diligence is important. Patience is important. Understanding that, yes, you might not play as well for a week or so when you're trying to understand a new concept. But at the same time, always asking, is that what she meant? <laughs> like st straight risk. What is that for me? Mm -hmm. Is that supposed to feel that stiff? I really doubt she would want me to feel that stiff. That's I'm probably let me try something else. Let me try move a finger or so there needs to be a really um, big dedication to experimentation and, and putting things through our own filter. I mm. hope that's helpful. Yeah, it's, it kind of goes back to performing of like forgetting yourself and not kind of just like leaving that mindset and kind of worrying more about expressing and and uh, just like sharing music. So. Yeah. I have another follow-up question. As a mindful performer slash practicer, is there or are there times when it is appropriate to drill in the practice room? Or do you find that it's not super helpful? Yes, I think drilling is great when it's done right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. There's, oh yeah, I mean, now, how many hours do we have for this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, drilling is great. Mindless drilling is wrong. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that it's like what I was talking about, this wishful thinking where you're just repeating it five times, you can fix it or you can, you know, anchor the bad habits. Um, ideally, each repetition would bring a reinforcement of the good habits or a new realization. Mm. Oh, I, I'm not, I'm tensing up the note before the shift. Mm -hmm. Play it again. Oh, 
I actually don't even know what note I'm shifting to. And then when it starts to feel good, okay, yeah, I'm getting it. Let's re you know, reinforce these good habits. Mm -hmm. But if you're playing it, you know, let's say you're trying to drill a passage. That's what you're talking about, right? Like just like mm -hmm. yeah. repeating, drilling things. Mm -hmm. If you're playing it and it's wrong, before you play it again, think for a second. Just just one pause, mm -hmm. <laughs> quick pause, and ask yourself what happened. Mm -hmm. It all comes to asking questions. All the, I, you know, if someone is an investigator in the practice room, so much can get accomplished. The mm -hmm. questioning, like the get out your your. That's mm -hmm. another mindset of the deep practice model is the problem solving mindset to approach everything from a, my, a problem solving perspective. Scientific method has its place in the practice room. Mm -hmm. We have a, a system of five questions that the clients can use at home to solve problems, which is super similar to the the scientific method. And it's, it's just questions like, what what is happening? How can I fix it? What's my plan? How can I enjoy it? Mm -hmm. You know, how can I enjoy fixing this problem? But so drills are great. There's so many passages actually that I think we must drill. Mm -hmm. So that we have until the, the body can play it without us thinking. Right. So that we have the physical ability to play it and the freedom to play it. Having said that, a super important thing I should mention, though, is drill. Yes, for technique, but always, always, always at the root of it, know the musical intention behind it. Mm -hmm. That's one mistake I see students do a mm -hmm. lot that I do also sometimes too, is they separate the interpretation from the technical work. And my old teacher Zvi used to always say, I wish I could imitate him because the way mm -hmm. he said it was all of it, you know, mm -hmm. but he would say, technique is conception. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's so true. If you're practicing a shift, and you use all of the best technique to practice a shift, but you're, you're, you're forgetting real life. I, mm -hmm. I always tell my clients and my students, keep real life in mind when you're practicing something. Where mm. are you going to be in the bow? Is this crescendo? Is this the opening of the phrase? Where are you going with this? What's the arc? Uh, what's the stroke? What's the, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and so that you, when you are not playing it, the, in the right place of the bow, you know that you're not doing it for a very specific purpose, mm -hmm. mindfully. Because oftentimes I'll see people, they do, so, right, they'll do a slow work drill and then they'll build it up. But half the time they're playing with the wrong articulation, absolutely no vibrato, no musicality. Um, um, I don't know. It, it yeah. doesn't work when you take your interpretation out of the technique work yep. because then you try mm -hmm. to put them back together and all of a sudden you have to go, you know, 20 steps back. So uh, I would say to always, and I'm saying, I'm not saying that you have to always practice musically, the, the, yeah, musically, but that, okay. So this passage of 16th notes, I'm going to practice with different rhythms. Of course I know it's not the right rhythms mm -hmm. or different bowings and to do that, I might be in a different place of the bow, but I know that I'm doing it to fix a very specific issue. Right. And then I will also take time after that to work on how to play this passage musically with the interpretation. So that's a, a really important thing that those mindless drills 
I see where people just, it's like I said, I, I'll stop circling back to this, but it's mm -hmm. this wishful thinking where if I just play it 40 times, it's going to be great. That's not how it works. Mm -hmm. So to have each repetition bring either improvement or a new finding mm -hmm. and then being conscious that if you're stepping away from the way you would perform it, that you you know why you're doing that. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank yeah. you. I mean, it's like if you're not moving forward, you're going to move backwards. So, well, thank you. Would you just introduce our uh, listeners to your podcast and what it's about? Yes, absolutely. So the Mind Over Finger podcast was really kind of a, uh, it's a passion project mm -hmm. out of me wanting to have this content out for, you know, my students and, and my clients, but also anyone who's a music lover. I think that one of the beauty of all of the technology that we have access to right now is that I really feel like it's bringing all uh, mm. genre of music mm -hmm. together, but also all musicians, mm -hmm. the amateurs, the, you know, the, the highest class performers. Um, and we're all coming together. The enthusiasm, the love for music is really just something we can all benefit from so i mm -hmm. love that so the the mind over finger podcast is conversations about mindful practice and mindful music making uh with artists and teachers and uh, also i'm having this season you know specialists in uh, eft tapping mm. uh, alexander technique all of those things mm -hmm. so it's uh i try to cover a lot of aspects of um what can make us better artists and um, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. That's great. We'll definitely link, in, link it in the description so you guys can go listen to it. Absolutely. Um, just in conclusion, we have two more quick questions. And I mean, it might, they don't have to be new answers, but um, <laughs> what is some tools you'd recommend our listeners to put in their toolbox? Mm. Record yourself. Mm-hmm. And find an easy way to do it. <laughs> Recording yourself can be so um, helpful. And I don't mean just like always do a run through. I mean, just take one passage and record it a few times and see how it can help you fix it. Mm. So recording yourself. And it doesn't have to be expensive equipment. Any smartphone will do. Mm -hmm. It's so beneficial. Absolutely. Okay. I'm glad that you said make it the easiest way possible <laughs> yes. because when I was in school, which wasn't that long ago, like the best way to get a recording of yourself, you had to go check out a Zoom recorder mm -hmm. from the school. And now it's so much more accessible and I still beg my students to record themselves. Mm -hmm. And it was hard to, for my teacher to get me to do it to myself. And I, yeah. I think part of it was wrapped up in ego. Yes. I really didn't want to know what I sounded like. <laughs> um, and the minute I started recording myself, I had so, my lessons, I got so much more done in them because she wasn't telling me things I already knew. Mm -hmm. She was telling me things that I couldn't catch on my own. But before, yeah. I, like, wouldn't make myself, like, face those those demons until I'd get to the lesson and then I'd be forced mm -hmm. to. And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I like that a lot. Make yeah. it as easy as possible and do it mm -hmm. as and much as you, you can. You know, I would say for Apple users, and this is not a sponsorship, I'm not getting money, <laughs> but use, um, try the Modacity app if you haven't heard of it. I haven't. Uh, it's, no, 
Modacity is was developed by a musician, mm. and it's kind of like a mindful practice app. You can create, there's a paid version, there's a free version that offers just a lot of value there for free. So I would say if you're an Apple user, it's not available on Android yet, but if you have a, an iPhone or iPad, it works. And you can create some practice lists. There's some mindfulness prompts, but the recording hmm. function on this app is phenomenal. Hmm. The reason is that once you hit record, you know, it records. Once you press stop, it will play back automatically right away. Oh, great. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. And then once you're done listening to your little passage, you want to record again, press the button, it starts recording again. There's no having to press stop. You know, mm -hmm. And then you can save recordings if you want. But the recording function on Modacity, they have a really good metronome function as well. Um, for metronome, I really love... Um, What's my metronome app? I forget. Um, I want to remember because I would really recommend this as well. Mm -hmm. Is Modacity M-O-D or M-8? Yes. Okay. M-O-D-A-C. So for metronome, I love Tunable mm -hmm. or Tunable. I don't know how you say it. Oh, <laughs> got it. Um, offers so many amazing functions. At home, I just use a good old like dial metronome. <laughs> that's I, for me. That's sure. the simplest. I like simple tools. Like mm -hmm. yeah. make it to to quote Gretchen Rubin. She's an author. Make it easy to go right and hard to go wrong. Like mm. use sample tools. If it's too complex, you're not going to use it. So mm -hmm. if it's a good old dial metronome, tunable is on the go. Um, but I haven't been on the go in like eight months. <laughs> so, um, but but Modacity is another thing I would say to check out. The recording function is really great. Just a little fun tip that you can try. Practice, play it and record it at slow tempo mm -hmm. and then play it back twice as fast and mm. see if what you're doing slowly uh. looks like what it should sound like huh. in tempo. I've never tried that. I've, I've done the opposite because I like to do folk music. And so mm -hmm. I'll use YouTube and play it at half speed to learn. So mm -hmm. it slows it down. Um, but I've, I've never tried it that's, the other way. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I'm that's great. And you, you really get to see that even at slow tempo, let's say your intonation is not coming out mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well, or your rhythm is not accurate yeah. or... Mm -hmm. I don't know. You're sliding too slowly or something like this. It's, <laughs> mm -hmm. it's really interesting. For that me, those things make, make it fun. And anything that makes practicing yeah. fun is, I think, makes me mindful because it makes me engaged and interested. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's awesome. Okay. Our last question for you is, what do you consider to be your greatest accomplishment? Oh, wow. What is it? I don't know. I think that whenever I get testimonial from a student or a client telling me mm. that I've had some sort of positive impact in their life hmm. um, I think that would be it definitely yes uh, it makes such a big difference when someone let you know that you've had mm -hmm. a positive impact in their life for sure so that would be in my in my musical life um, then you know in my personal life probably my kids you know, yeah <laughs> yeah uh -huh. that's yes. great Cool. Well, thank you so much. We greatly appreciate your time and all the things that we've learned. Yeah, thank you for spending the morning with us. Yes, it's been great. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. 
Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, we're fairly new, so we'd appreciate it if you shared it with all of your friends. And you can find us on all the podcasting platforms you listen to. And we're also on YouTube. So thanks for watching. Is there an episode that you would like us to cover or a topic that we haven't yet? If you have one, feel free to contact us through our website, which is themusicianstoolboxpodcast.com, or you can email us at themusicianstoolboxpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and we also, for those of you who are watching our YouTube channel, know, but we've got some amazing merch that we're not wearing right now, but it looks really sick. So we appreciate you checking that out on our website um, and also anywhere else you find links. You could probably find a picture or two of it also on our social media accounts. Oh, um, yeah. And you can also find information about the next person that we're going to be presenting to you. So yeah. we are on Instagram and Facebook, Facebook and you can find us at Musicians Toolbox. Perfect. Thanks for listening. See you later. Bye.